Reflections on St. Paul's Letter to the Romans by Gil Bailey Produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 6 Most commentaries on Romans put their energy, their great energy, into the first chapters or say up to chap- up through chapter 8. 7 and 8 really received the greatest critical attention and that's as it should be. And attention then trails off sharply after chapter 8. Chapter 9, 10, and 11 gets considerably less critical attention and then the final chapters get even less than that. So it falls off quite precipitously after that. And there's perfectly legitimate reasons for that. However, as I began reading over chapter 9, 10, and 11, I felt that Paul was grappling with an issue in terms of religion, theology, scripture, and so on, which was really an issue, which was really an anthropological issue. And he he had only he had to work with this conundrum, this conundrum that he he faced. He had only the scriptures and certain understandings about the about uh, the world that he had derived from scriptures as uh, as tools for trying to come to grips with this. But I kept feeling there's something really profound and deep underneath this issue. And as I would read through, it was very strange for me. It was as though I would be reading through and I would come upon a passage and I would feel the profundity, literally feel the profundity, without being able myself to put my finger on it. And so it it just intrigued me to no end. So I would go back over these things and and clearly Paul feels something here. But uh, he, he... he doesn't. It's clear, also to me at least, that he's not satisfied with any of the strategies that he has that he has employed in order to try to explicate it. So, what I hope will come out of our explorations is that we'll get a little closer to at least feeling the profundity of what is underneath Paul's discussion in these chapters. And as I read them and pursued them, what I realized is that there's a little bit in here of the last thing that I mentioned in the last session, which is two comments I made. One was that we develop our moral acuity at the expense of those whose moral failures we observe and repudiate. And that's quite a... to stop and take take account of that, that's quite something. We develop our moral acuities at the expense of those whose moral failures we observe and repudiate. In other words, the very very people we see performing these things that we think are, are vile, we owe them a debt in a certain curious way. Because without them, we wouldn't, our own moral sensibilities would have lain more dormant than they are. Well, I don't know what that means exactly, but it's something to observe. 
it it helps maybe with the the eternal human problem of pride and uh, self righteousness. But then later in the session, I allowed as how I had this little thing. I allowed I allowed as how in the little quiet time before our sessions begin, I say a little prayer, and it's totally ridiculous to make this comparison, you understand, but it came to me that I the, the prayer is a little bit like the prayer at uh, Gethsemane, which is, uh, I, would like for, I would like to have this thing go my way. Let's say, I would like to make my little contribution, which is my presentation this morning, and I would like to have it really work. I would like to have everybody think, oh, well, I, I understand that, and that's helpful, and you know, I'm glad Gil went through all that. So that's my prayer. But then I also say, well, if that doesn't happen, I would like to fail uh, in a way that does some justice to the revelation I would have explicated had I succeeded. You see what I'm saying? <laughs> it reminds me of Robert Frost. The, Robert Frost in one of his essays once said, of course I'm trying to trip people up. I'm a poet, but I'm trying to make them fall forward. <laughs> well, for, for me it was, for me it was, yeah, if I fall, I want to fall facing the revelation that I would have explicated had I not fallen, you know? Okay, so I was thinking about both of those things. One is that our moral acuities are developed by observing people whose moral failures we repudiate, and so in some way we owe them a debt. We can't be too pompous. We we are we feed spiritually and morally in some strange way off the failures of others, and. And secondly, that uh, sometimes when things fail, they do more justice to the revelation than when they succeed. That seemed to me to be of a piece a little bit with what Paul's doing in these chapters, because Paul is grappling with the problem of the role of Israel in the Christian revelation. Not exactly in the way that the church would later grapple with it when it had to face the Controversy, the uh, controversy about whether or not the Hebrew scriptures w- would be part of the Christian canon, uh, the Marcionite heresy uh, that Marcion said, well, the, the God of the, the Yahweh of the Old Testament is a primitive God, and the God that Jesus reveals is a, is a God of love and forgiveness, and you can't square the two at all. And so on, these are other controversies. Well, it, Paul's not grappling with them at that level. But he is seriously grappling with this problem which he faced, which is that the Jews were chosen, were the elect. And they were chosen, the scriptures that he revered had taught him and his tradition taught him that the Jews, that God had chosen the Jews as his instrument in the world and that he had made a permanent and, and, uh, uh, irrevocable covenant with them that they would be his 
tool for the revelation, his self-revelation and the salvation of the world. And so Paul has that. And then on the other hand, Paul has the fact that the Jews rejected Christ. That certain that, that the Jewish authorities, the Sanhedrin and so on, brought about the execution of Christ or contributed to it, along with the Romans. And that and that more to the point for Paul in his time, that the Jews had rejected the message, the gospel. And so now he has to square these two things. Does this mean that that God changed his mind and revoked the covenant with the Jews? Do the Jews still have a role to play? Now he's thinking about this not in terms of the future. He's thinking about it in terms of the past and the present. For him, the present. What are the Jews reject who are rejecting Christ still playing some role in the salvation of the world? I think he's raising a tremendously powerful issue, and one of the one of the indications that it is powerful for him, and that it's really too powerful for any of the interpretive strategies that he employs on it, is that he goes from one to another of these interpretive strategies. He tries to understand it, and he runs down one line of reasoning, and then he changes his metaphor, and he uses another metaphor, and he tries, he runs that one out, and it's it's sort of semi-satisfactory, but never really satisfactory. And then he changes to another metaphor, and tries again. And he's moving all over the place, trying to come to grips with this with this dilemma he faces. Are, is election still in force? And if so, how do you square that with the fact that the Jews have rejected Christ? And I think underneath that is something really profound, which in every once in a while you feel that Paul's discourse, his thought process, is going along, grappling with that, and suddenly it falls into this fissure and touches something really powerful and profound about it. And then it comes back and tries to explicate it again. And so that's what I want to go through. I want to do is go through here and and bring out a few of those things and see if we can fall into one of those fissures ourselves. First of all, he starts off by insisting that he's absolutely sincere and genuine in the anguish he feels over the fact that his fellow Jews have not only rejected Jesus, but rejected the gospel. And And after the strong language he used in the early part of the letter, about and in Galatians particularly, about how you can't go back to the law and the Mosaic law and so on, and you can't have it both ways. And so it seems like Paul was just, you know, cutting it off entirely. And so now he has to really emphasize the fact that that not only is that not the case, but that he feels real anguish about that. So he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying as my conscience bears witness to me in the Holy Spirit that my sorrow is great and the anguish in my heart is unrelenting. For I could even wish to be accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, by descent. They are Israelites, and to them belong the sonship, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the cult, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from them by natural descent comes the Messiah, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. It's a powerful open, and it's a great sort of hymn to Israel and its significance. And then he comes to the real question for him. 
he answers the question. He doesn't state the question. He answers it. It is not as though the Word of God has failed, because that's part of the implication of his earlier part of the letter. If God made promises to Israel, uh, Israel was the elect, the chosen people, God's instrument in human history, and suddenly now they seem to have missed it. So does that mean God, God's word has failed? And he says, no. For not all descendants of Israel are truly Israel. Now what, we, now what begins is Paul's attempt to figure this thing out. And we should say at the outset, his attempt is not terribly successful. It, it, it gives me hope, you know, because a lot of things, I attempt things that are much, uh, much smaller tasks, and sometimes I feel like I'm not very successful. So here's Paul, who's given 15 years of undivided attention to these issues and uh, has felt them at the core of his being, and he's trying to come to grips with them, and I think he does so unsuccessfully, unless we can occasionally touch that nerve that he touches. So his first strategy is to understand it, it always in terms of Scripture, and he says, all the descendants of Israel are not truly Israel, nor because they are offspring of Abraham are they all his children. In other words, just because they are the they are the descendants of Abraham, the bloodline descendants of Abraham, does not mean that they are children of Abraham. He makes that distinction, which is exactly the same distinction that has already been made in the Hebrew Scripture between circumcision and circumcision of the heart. Uh, so you so it's so it's a literal kind of identific uh, ethnic identification versus some deeper uh, commitment and understanding of the tradition. But then he uses the he uses the story of of Ishmael and Isaac to say, look, uh, he doesn't mention Ishmael, but uh, but Abraham had a son by Hagar his 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 uh, wife's servant, and that son was Ishmael, and the promise did not go to Ishmael. It went to Isaac. And so God makes these choices, he's saying. He's using this as a way of saying, you see, every once in a while it seems to be going in a certain way, and then suddenly, arbitrarily, or for to what appears to us arbitrary reason, it goes in a certain direction. And so Isaac bears the promise and then when Isaac has children even before they are born Jacob and Esau are still in the womb God chooses Jacob even though he's going to be the younger of the two and so he quotes some text some uh, some Hebrew scripture text about that Jacob I loved but Esau I hated and so on the older shall serve the younger and, and so on and then he quotes Moses from Exodus I will show mercy on whomever I will. I will have compassion on whomever I will, and so on. It doesn't. It's not terribly convincing. I don't think. Perhaps people, the, his original audience, might have ha- found it so. He says, "Is God unjust? No, not at all. He has he has his reasons. It's a mystery to us, but he's still in charge of it. But then he comes to something I think is a little more powerful." He says, For Scripture says to Pharaoh, 
For this, and this quotes from Exodus 9, For this very reason I have raised you up, that I might display my power through you, that my name might be proclaimed over all the earth. Therefore, the Paul says, Therefore God has mercy on whomever he wills and hardens the heart of whomever he chooses. Now this gets to me, this is one of those fissures. It's, it's nothing new in, in Hebrew scriptures. But when it rises, when it opens up here in Paul, I think we're, we're getting a glimpse of something truly profound and we'll try to address it anthropologically in, in a minute or two. What does it mean that God hardened the heart of the Pharaoh? When I, this is what exegetes call protological thinking, which is a very, a very uh, familiar aspect of uh, of the Old Testament uh, sense of things, or the Deuteronomic sensibilities, you might say, and that is that that God is in control of everything. For example, the prophets. The prophets would say to Israel, if the, if the Assyrians came in and just destroyed Israel, uh, and as a result, there was this deepening of faith in some way, a deepening of, of religiosity and a humbling and so on, the prophets would say, that was God's doing. God did that. God used the Assyrian army to bring us to, back to our sense of who we really are and devotion and fidelity and fear of the Lord and all that. So protological thinking would be that since God's doing everything, if, so, if a catastrophe, even a catastrophe, if a catastrophe happens, the end result of which is a, is a religious deepening, then that means God set the catastrophe in motion in order to accomplish the religious deepening. Therefore, God hardened the Pharaoh's heart. Now, what Paul is really seeing, or I should say, what, it's, what we can see through this is not so much that God is a puppeteer who hardens some people's hearts and softens others, but that resistance to the biblical revelation is an absolutely essential ingredient in that revelation coming into the world. And that's the point I want to try to touch on because I think that's the that's the point underneath Paul's elaborate discussion in these chapters imagine for for a second if what would have happened had Yahweh to speak in Old Testament terms had Yahweh not hardened the heart of the Pharaoh you know I don't think Yahweh hardens the heart of the Pharaoh but I think there's a tremendous truth in in that what would have happened if Moses had gone to the Pharaoh and said let my people go, and Pharaoh had said, okay, go on, with my blessing. Here's an escort. You know, how we, the scripture says, Yahweh hardened his heart so that he could reveal his liberating power so that nobody would ever think that it was, that, that the freedom of the Israelites was brought about by the by the uh, beneficence of of uh, the, the pagan pharaoh, so that something would be revealed. So, had Yahweh not hardened the pharaoh's heart, then there would have been no none of the 
the demonstrations of Yahweh's power, none of the plagues, none, no, no Passover, no Red Sea crossing, no Egyptians stuck in the mud, uh, no Epiphany at Mount Sinai, no Israel, no covenants, no Bible, no revelation. So what does it mean? You see, for Paul, the Pharaoh is the Jewish people in his time who have refuted, who have refused the gospel message, and by slight extension, the the Jewish establishment, religious establishment that took a part in the in the crucifixion of Jesus. What if they hadn't? What if what if uh, the high priest had said, "Well"? Just don't do it again. Just go on back out to Nazareth and don't do it again. Or try to be more careful on the Sabbath. What if it had been like that? That's the question underlying this. To what extent does the biblical revelation require opposition? So, Paul then quotes a few little texts about how it is that God hardens hearts or leaves people in darkness and ex- and exploits their obtuseness. He says, as it stands written, God granted them stupor of spirit, eyes that see not, ears that hear not, even to this day. David says, this is the psalmist, David says, May their table be a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be dimmed so that they cannot see. Now, he leaves that argument for a while and goes off. Now he tries another tack. And he has two sort of metaphorical systems that he uses, or major metaphors. One is the the, the potter and the pot. God is the potter, and who who can complain what kind of pots he makes? Sometimes he makes vessels of wrath. Sometimes he makes vessels of mercy. And there's some sort of strange relationship between these vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy. And those of us who are vessels of mercy have in some way some debt, owe some debt to those who are vessels of wrath because the they they make possible so it's very un, it's unclear but it's it's Paul trying to grapple with this and the other metaphor he uses and I think equally unsuccessfully is the metaphor of the rootstock the olive rootstock and the branches and the pruning so that you have the original olive tree and then God prunes off the ones that are that are not bearing fruit or for whatever reason prunes them off and grafts on this other Gentile, you see, branch. But then the Gentile branch is still drawing its sap from the root stock. So that's successful in a certain way, but it still doesn't explain the underlying issue, which is that the, the revelation requires opponents. And that's a point that he makes very powerfully in the verse where he says, their rejection, the rejection of Jews, their rejection has meant reconciliation of the world. What he means is that had not the Jews rejected the gospel, had it would have remained strictly within the Jewish orbit, 
and would not have become accessible to the Gentile world. As it is, Paul is writing before the great, the, the great uh, decisive moment later in the first century when the, when the synagogue kicked the Christians out. But he's already writing the context of the struggle that led to that. So he's saying, had they not rejected it, repudiated it, then it would not have gone out into the Gentile world and the rest of the world would not be hearing about it. And on the other hand, the other aspect of this, had they not rejected it, the, the rejection of, by, the, by Orthodox Judaism of the Christian uh, gospel required the Christians to come to grips with the universality of their message. And they would not have been required to do that had it remained strictly in the Jewish orbit because it or, that was an already defined reality. And when it, so the, when the message had to go out and be preached to Gentiles who never, never knew of the, of the Hebrew scriptures, those preaching it had to articulate its universality in ways that, that they would not have had to had it remained in the Jewish orbit. So Paul is recognizing that there's this tremendous benefit that came to the Christian gospel as a result of the Jews rejecting it. So now what are we going to say? What is their role? in the world. We have benefited from their rejection, just as the Israelites in Egypt benefited from the hardening of the Pharaoh's heart. But, but Paul admits through, his, through this convoluted discourse of his, every, every once in a while he admits, and, and at the end he, he admits in a very moving way, I think, that it's a great mystery and he can't figure it out. And he says, in one place in ch- near the end of chapter 11, he says, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery lest you become wise in your own estimation. He's talking to the Gentiles in Rome now. Lest you think smugly that you ha- enjoy a superiority because you accepted this message and because the Jews who should have didn't. And he says, no, I don't want that to happen. There's a mystery going on here. And, and in parentheses, I think, he might say, a mystery that I can't quite get my hands on, but I feel it. And he says, the mystery is that a partial hardening of the heart has come upon Israel until the full number of the Gentiles comes in. He changes the, the, the eschatology, the Jewish eschatology was, that when all the Jews returned to Israel, when all the Jews returned to the Holy Mountain, uh, and worship there, then at that moment the Messianic age will have arrived and all the world will be converted to Yahweh. That was the Jewish uh, eschatology. And Paul has turned that around. Now he says the Jews have rejected and that rejection has played some strange, strangely ambivalent role in a Christian uh, revelation. And therefore, the gospel being preached to the Gentile world, after all the Gentiles, all the non-Jews are converted, then the Jews will be converted. So he's changed his eschatology around. But then he says, as far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. Isn't that interesting? Now, what in the world? They are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are the beloved of God 
because of the patriarch. Now that I have to, have to remind us now what's underneath this is the role that the rejectors play in the biblical revelation generally and in the Christian revelation specifically. What if there were no rejectors? So would that revelation come into the world? Could it come into the world without despisers? If not, where do those despisers fit into things? And those of us who happen not to be despisers are not conspicuously so. Uh, can we afford to be altogether contemptuous of the despisers? If the despisers play some role in the continuing revelation. Now this is, sounds very bizarre. It's even, I feel a little bit the way Paul does, you know, I, I, I see this, this logic moving in a certain direction, and I want to jump out in front of it and say, certainly not, <laughs> because it, it it does go in some very strange places. But I think we should, I think we need to try to get underneath it a little bit. For Paul, those who rejected, rejected because, at least in some sense, God had hardened their hearts. By the way, for Paul also, those who accept as you know from his discussion of grace, those who accept, accept for the, because God has softened their heart. And this is this comes out in John's Gospel where John says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. You see, it's, it's something else at work, the paraclete at work in the world. Robert Hamilton Kelly sums up Paul's discussion here succinctly. He says, within the plan of salvation, therefore, according to Paul, Within the plan of salvation, there is a group of Jews that performs the noble task of accepting Christ and another that performs the menial task of rejecting him. All, however, says Hammond Kelly, are chosen for their roles and all, therefore, belong to the elect. So now I want to just go outside Paul's letter to the Romans here for a minute and explore this. There are echoes of this elsewhere in the New Testament, in the Old, and in lots of things outside the scriptural canon altogether. In Mark 4, there's this strange passage where Jesus is asked, why do you speak in parables? And he says, basically, I speak in parables so that uh, the wrong ones won't won't understand what I'm saying. So you'll get it and they won't get it. This is part of a, a, an anomaly of Mark's gospel. There's, there's In Mark's gospel, this thing called the messianic secret. And Jesus is trying to not let out the fact that he's the Messiah and also that that there's some sense that this thing doesn't, we shouldn't spread it outside of a certain circle here for the time being. So, but in, but Mark in expressing that has Jesus or the Jesus of Mark's gospel quotes Isaiah 6 in response to this question why are you speaking in parable 
And I want to quote that passage. I want to expand the quote a little bit to pick up just just uh, before it begins and then uh, follow through. And it's a passage in Isaiah 6, and it goes like this. Isaiah 6 is the, is the call story of Isaiah. So Isaiah says, I then heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Listen and listen, but never understand. Look and look, but never perceive. Make this people's heart coarse. Make their ears dull. Shut their eyes tight, or they will use their eyes to see, use their ears to hear, use their hearts to understand, and change their ways and be healed. So the prophet is causing the hardening of the heart. It's bringing about... Now, of course, all the commentaries and all the footnotes will say, now, wait a minute, this doesn't mean that God's actually bringing about the hardening of the heart. It just means that people do this when prophets start to talk. This is what happens when prophets start to talk. Well, that's true, of course, but I think there's that's only part of the truth. And I want to come back to that in a minute. But the reason I brought it up here is because it's an example of opposition being necessary. Clearly, if Isaiah is a prophet and Yahweh has chosen a prophet, Yahweh wants a prophet for, the, for what reason? Well, in order to, to speak his truth in a world that's, that's, uh, that's not hearing it. Okay, Yahweh's going to speak a truth in a world that's not hearing it. And in order to get it heard, he hardens the heart of the people. He makes them deaf to the prophet in order that the prophet might speak the truth. Think of that. What does that mean? He makes the people deaf to what the prophet's saying in order that the prophet might... Or or let's put it this way. He makes the people... Um, he makes the people antagonistic towards the prophet in order that the prophet's message might be heard. Now, that seems impossible because he has said he's made their, ear, their ears dull. He's destroyed their hearing in order that the prophet might get through to them. I think the way to understand that is that he has destroyed their hearing in order that, which is to say, made them hostile to the prophet in order that the prophet might speak the truth. The truth will never be heard by those in whose presence the prophet stands at that moment. That's why we have the book. <laughs> you see, the genius of the, of, the, of the Bible is that it's never understood at the moment. And it can't be understood in the moment because the truth can only be spoken in the face of opposition that refuses to hear it. And that's why you have to have a book. <laughs> you see what I mean? Because it can only be understood later on. And that the opposition is, is the necessary ingredient to the truth being spoken. Now that's... We're used to thinking in romantic terms. Our romantic terms are... 
well, the prophets are these marvelous, wonderful, innocent, holy, upright, righteous people, which they probably were, many of them were, some of them, and the people are all benighted, you know, and they have, they're hostile to prophets and so on. Well, maybe the hostility of the people had a role to play in awakening of the prophetic voice. If you read Isaiah 6, it says, in a sense, it says, okay, Isaiah, you want to speak the prophetic truth? Well, if that's how, if you're going to do it for me, here are the circumstances under which you're going to do it. I'm going to have to unite the people against you, and then you'll be able to speak the truth. But you can only speak it in that, in that context. And so now, this, this is all derivative, really, of Paul's discussion about hardening the Pharaoh's heart. Now, to, to jump into the 20th century here and into literature, there's a version of this in Eliot East Coker, where he says, Our only health is the disease if we obey the dying nurse, whose constant care is not to please, but to remind of our and Adam's curse, and that to be restored, our sickness must grow worse. What Eliot has said here in East Coker, that our sickness must grow, to be restored, our sickness must grow worse, is absolutely uh, parallel to what Paul says in Romans when he says, when the measure of sin is full, grace overflows. And the measure of sin is full. What does that mean? It's only then that grace overflows. And you could say in terms of of Isaiah 6, when the opposition of the people is complete, you will be able to speak the, the, the pure truth. The pureness of the truth you speak will be in direct proportion to the degree of social opposition in the presence of which you speak it. Now, why is that? If that's so, why is that so? Before leaving Paul, I want to acknowledge his acknowledgement, which is that it was a mystery to him. After he went through these various exercises, the potter and the pot, the branches and the, the pruning, and the God choosing Isaac instead of Ishmael, and a number of others, all these little strategies for trying to understand this strange conundrum, which is that the, re- that the rejection of Jesus by those who participated in his crucifixion and by the Jews later rejecting the gospel was necessary in order for the revelation to break in on the world. He's trying to come to grips with that, and he's, and he's employed these very strategies not satisfactorily, and he understands that it's not very satisfactory. So at the end he says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God. How inscrutable are his judgments. How untraceable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? So he ends this whole thing at the end of chapter 11 with a kind of hymn to the mystery of it all. He throws his hands up, so to speak, and says, it's a mystery. In a sense, what Paul is doing is he's trying to clear space within the Christian dispensation for the Jews who reject Christ. He's trying to say, not only the Jews who accept Christ, you see, 
But the Jews who reject Christ, they have a role to play in the world because opponents of the gospel revelation always play an essential role in that revelation. It has to come in the face of opposition. And we have to ask ourselves, why does it have to come in the face of opposition? It reminds me of that funny scene in Woody Allen's movie where he plays the Cossack soldier and the rabbi in a battle. I've probably mentioned this before, but the bombs start going off, and Woody Allen, the Cossack soldier, says, oh my gosh, you know, he's running around, get me out of here, right? one of these bombs is going to fall on me. And then Woody Allen, who's the rabbi, says, no, my son, fear not, God is simply testing us. And Woody Allen, who's the Cossack soldier, says, why doesn't he give us a written test? Well, so... Why is it that the revelation always has to come in the face of opposition? The Gospel of John says, He came into the world, and He came into His own domain, into His own culture, really, is what it means, and His own people rejected Him. In other words, it was necessary that His own people reject Him. It was part of what had to happen in order for the revelation to break in on the world. Had He come and said, this is the message, and everybody had said, hooray, ticker tape parade, and all the rest of it, it would not have been the biblical message. Because you could say, yes, the biblical message is summarized on the, by the Sermon on the Mount. But the, the question, there are two issues. Number one is how to live in the kingdom, so to speak. That's the Sermon on the Mount. And the other is how to break the grip of the kingdom of this world. And that's what the cross does. And unless you do the latter, you can you can think about the former and try to do the former all day long, but you've got to break the grip of the uh, of of the structures of this world before it becomes possible. So the message always requires so the biblical message is always happening in the face of opposition precisely because it's what is generated, it's the lies and delusions generated by that oppositional force that has to be broken. And so the truth emerges precisely in that context. And I want to do something with that that I think will, seems like an aside here, but I think it will bring us back to the underlying issue for me, and that is why the biblical revelation requires opposition. Not just that it coincidentally encounters opposition, but that it cannot come into the world without opposition. And strange as it it may seem, I want to use in this little aside to get us a little further down the road on that, something that I read in a a book by by the theologian Franz Joseph Van Beek, and he quotes a radio broadcast that was broadcast in 1955 by Emmanuel Levinas, who's the Jewish thinker. And this was 12 years after the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, and it was an anonymous story that Levinas had read in the Zionist newspaper in Paris, fictional story, attributed to uh, Yassel ben Yassel, or Yassel Rakover, who 
purported to tell a story, first-person story, of someone who had been in the Warsaw Ghetto and who had suffered through the destruction of the ghetto and whose family had been destroyed in that uh, in the crushing of the uprising. And Levinas says this is an unbelievably powerful story, and so he read it and commented on it. I want to touch on Levinas's remarks and what they mean, because Levinas, in this broadcast, is confronting the issue exactly in where Paul left it. Paul, Paul says the Torah is... Christ is the, is the end of the Torah, the termination or the fulfillment of the Torah. The law is over. The new organizing principle, so to speak, this new civilizing principle, the new religious principle is Christ, the person, Jesus, not the law. So the new mediation is no longer the law, but it is the person, Christ. And Levinas takes takes that issue, hits that issue directly. By the way, I have great reverence for Levinas. I don't know his work terribly well, but he's very much in the in the spirit of Buber, or somebody like Abraham Heschel is very powerful uh, spokesman for the truth. So I, if I, if I take Paul's side in this little argument, it's not because I don't have great appreciation for people like Levinas. Levinas says, the relationship between God and the human person is not an emotional communion within the context of the love of an incarnate God, but a relationship between minds that is mediated by teaching, by the Torah. There, there always has to be mediation. You see, the biblical God is always an un- unknown God. The question is, what is the mediating uh, element? And for, for Jews, it is the Torah, the Mosaic Law, and for Christians, it's Christ. Levinas says, the guarantee that there is a living God in our midst is precisely a word of God that is not incarnate. God is concrete not by means of incarnation, but by, but by means of the law. He quotes Yasel ben Yasel, who says, I love God, but I love his Torah more because his Torah, his law, is the real mediation, and without that it would be lost. And Levinas is writing this, he, Levinas is giving this address in 1955, when the writings of Simon Weil were, were becoming well known among the, uh, the intellectuals in Europe, and Simon Weil was Jewish, and her writings were Christian. And it... it uh, struck Levinas the wrong way and he he says in the middle of this radio program he says as he talks about the Torah he says Simon Weil you have never understood anything about the Torah and I think he's right Simon Weil was raised in a in an agnostic Jewish family and she went to this you know the Sorbonne or wherever and studied under the under the uh, in the philosophical tradition, studied Plato and whatnot, and had much more understanding of that world, Homer, and she dismissed the the, the Hebrew scriptures far too cavalierly, and I so I think the I think I think he's right about that. 
but in, in any event, back to what Levinas is doing. He quotes from the story now, this little story that he found so powerful. Uh, this Yasel bin Yasel says, Now I know that you are truly my God. You cannot possibly be the God of those whose deeds are the most horrible expression of a militant absence of God. So you cannot possibly be their God. But now, what does he mean by now? The Warsaw Ghetto, the crushing of the Warsaw Uprising. In the face of this incredible catastrophe, now I know that you are my God. The biblical God is always the God of the victim. Now I know that you are my God, and I know that you cannot possibly be the God of these terrible barbarians that are doing this to me. And the Torah is what makes that God visible. And the Torah is the law that scrupulously makes a distinction between sinners and righteous and uses its power and violence on behalf of the righteous against the sinners. Paul, however, has been an eyewitness to a instance in which the law, not only an eyewitness in Stephen's, the case of Stephen Stoning, but also through revelation of the crucifixion, of an instance in which the law used all that power and violence against God's beloved. So Paul has seen something about what the Torah does. He has seen that the Torah is implicated in the, in the process, in the sinfulness that it's trying to expel. Van Beek, who quotes Levinas's radio broadcast, refers to this passage where Yassel ben Yassel says, Now I know you are my God. How does he know that how does he know that the biblical God is his God? Or I shouldn't say how. When does he know that the biblical God is his God? He says, Now I know. He knows as the as this terrible, brutal opposition is occurring. Now I know that you are my God. And because the Torah is my mediating source, I know that you cannot possibly be the God of those others. Okay? And Van Beek says, we always, you see, Van Beek summarizes in a way what Paul understood. He says, we humans inevitably, quote, do justice with a vengeance. We always do justice with a vengeance. And I would say this, the Torah, and now I'm not speaking just strictly of, this, of the Mosaic Law, but what the Torah means anthropologically, which is law, civilizing, the civilizing power of the, of the sacred. It really means... Law means religion for, for, for Paul. The civilizing power of the sacred, the primitive sacred, and its, and its capacity to maintain order by having rules and regulations and rituals and the whole, and the whole panoply of, uh, of structures. The law always does justice with a vengeance. So Van Beek says, in the name of God, therefore, Jews and Christians 
must learn how to challenge each other to repent of the violence of their justice. Now there's a phrase for you, isn't it? To repent of the violence of their justice. And that, of course, is what the paraclete does. In John's Gospel, Jesus says the paraclete will come and, quote, he will show the world how wrong it was about sin, about who was in the right, and about judgment. And the, the, and the, the law simply can't do that. The law simply can't do that because the law op- always operates within the dialectic of sinners and righteous and always uh, turns on that distinction and therefore can never really recognize the vengeance with which it does justice, can never really repent of the violence of its justice, and can never really believe that its God is the God of its, you know, hated enemy or apostates or whatever they are. Yasel ben Yasel says, Now I know that you are truly my God. I know that because of all this opposition, this terrible, violent opposition. And suddenly, this is what Andrew McKenna calls the the victim's epistemological privilege. In the face of that, suddenly one can speak the truth. The truth means aletheia, to stop forgetting. Suddenly, one can speak the truth. Now I know you are truly my God. And this is like Woody Allen. Isn't there another way? (laughs) You know? Couldn't it happen otherwise? Couldn't I know it by just being a good person? Yes, 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 yes. But this is why, this is again, what does, what, what Christianity invites us all to do is to have this experience, is to partake of the victim's epistemological privilege by identifying, that is to say, having Christ as a Lord, that is to say, identifying deeply and indelibly with Christ as the, as the one who passes through the passion. And to have, and to partake of that privilege in that identification. So this is not saying we all have to go out and be martyred. But it is in that moment, is to stand in that situation is to be is to receive that privilege Um, so now I know that you are truly my God for you cannot possibly be the God of those whose deeds are the most horrible expression of a militant absence of God to which uh, Francis Joseph Van Beek says the definitive justice that is achieved by God comes about not by the crushing of all injustice, but by God taking it on, that is to say, taking on the injustice and absorbing it and out-suffering it. That is to say, final justice will reveal a God who is the God of the just and the unjust alike. In other words, Christians believe that God can, after all, be the God of those whose deeds are the most horrible expression of ungodliness. 